This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Yesterday, you may remember, we told you about thousands of beagles that need rescuing in Virginia. Today, we have a different kind of dog story, and it hits a lot closer to home. L.A. County's animal shelters, short on money, staff, volunteers, keeping dogs locked up in their kennels for weeks and even months at a time without letting them out for long walks or to play. So we will go in-depth. L.A. County will likely be designated as an area of high COVID spread today and with hospitalizations from the virus slowly creeping up. The return of the indoor mask mandate is possible, but is anyone going to actually enforce it? And at the end of today's show, we're going to try to answer some questions about the growing confusion over COVID vaccines. Should you run out to get a second booster shot or wait until the next crop of newly developed ones are available? Some of California's most sizzling real estate markets finally showing some signs of cooling off. If you've been sitting on the sidelines, is uh, now the time to try to buy a new house? Can you even afford one still? Russia launched a missile attack far away from the front lines in Ukraine, hitting a town in the western part of the country with seemingly no military value, killing dozens of civilians. We'll get an update on the war, and we'll check in on the president's very complicated trip to the Middle East. We start with L.A. County's beleaguered animal shelters. Madeline Bernstein is president of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in Los Angeles. Madeline, thanks for being with us. So exactly what is the problem? So the problem just really seems to be that um, there's just a lot of overcrowding, um, a lot of short staff, you know, um, issues that um, that 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 are are contributing to this mess. But the problem is that you know, and I haven't been in there to see it firsthand. But the problem just seems to be that you're going to create sort of a circular problem here. The more stress the animals are at the shelter, the more crowded they are, the more that they're locked into their cages without any release, the more they start to deteriorate behaviorally, mentally, and physically, which then makes them unsafe for staff and particularly untrained volunteers um, to work with them. And then you could see an uptick in bites. So it it really just seems to me like um, this situation has to be sort of paused, looked at, um, maybe look at the foster system, maybe um, look at um, other rescue groups that are maybe not in this state uh, to see if there's some relief for some of the animals that really need some long-term care. Otherwise, the situation continues to deteriorate. How are things going when it comes to volunteers? I mean, especially for for other groups like with you guys, because I think people think, oh, there's plenty of volunteers. Everyone loves to go and walk the dogs. But I mean, are there not enough people to go in there and and, and take them out for for 20 minutes? We'd, We'd love for them to get more. But sometimes that's all you can do. Well, volunteers are a really cherished group of people because they help, you know, keep everything going when you don't when you're not when you don't have an ability to have paid staff. And for us, a charity, it's particularly significant. But um, we put our volunteers through a lot of training. And with COVID uh, in the background, not every volunteer wants to come back and be in an area where they're around a lot of other people or members of the public. So um, we do have our dedicated volunteers coming back in. We're giving them refresher courses on how to handle the animals, take them in and out of the cages. And so it's work to actually walk a dog, take an animal in and out of the cage safely. So it's not like you can just put out a call and say, we need a hundred volunteers to walk the dogs. If those volunteers are not trained and those dogs are stressed, that's a recipe for a problem. And then when you get a dog bite, 
or a problem, then more volunteers won't come. So you see what I'm saying is that this has to stop now. There has to be a cycle breaker. And what that may be is that, you know, they have an interim director there. Um, I don't know what's the status of the search for a new general manager is at this point, but they have an interim director there. You can't rely on the public um, and rescue groups to solve all the problems. You have to sit there and figure out what enrichment can be done um, with the uh, staff that's existing. Maybe, you know, uh, go back to some COVID measures of appointment, uh, you know, appointments only to try to reduce some of the uh, intake into the shelter until the situation is stabilized. But it, it will just create it, this kind of a problem is has a life of its own. You know, you you start with a dog who's never been in a shelter and even the best shelter is a stress factor, you know, for a dog or a cat. They start to act out and then they appear to be unsafe. When they appear to be unsafe, then they're harder for staff to handle and staff has gotten bitten at LA City and it's harder for um, volunteers to be recruited to handle something that doesn't appear to be safe. And if there's a shortage of staff, then there's a shortage of, of training the volunteers or training new staff to safely interact with the animals. Yeah, so you've got to it, it's stop a whole this. cycle. Yeah. yeah, you have to stop this at a certain point and say, no more. Let's all sit down and figure this out. Madeline Bernstein, president of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals for Los Angeles. Madeline, thanks. Remember uh, yesterday I, I dropped my pen and I mentioned it. On yeah, the air that's right. I got a tweet from somebody who said, who uses pens? Well, we got stuff to... I know, just, but... We're very busy in here. I know, but they wanted to know who uses mm, pens. But thank you for listening. Yeah, uh, when we come back, <laughs> could be time to get your face masks back out in L.A. County. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Russia hits another apartment block with missiles in Ukraine, killing dozens of civilians. And then in the second hour of the show, we'll check in on the president's very complicated trip to the Middle East. Right now, though, L.A. County likely about to move into the category of high rate of COVID transmission, as defined by the CDC. The summer surge hitting us harder than any other part of the country, which could mean the return of an indoor face mask mandate. With us now is Dr. Howard Hu, who chairs the uh, Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at the USC Keck School of Medicine. He and his team have been working with L.A. County on COVID surveillance over the last couple of years. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Why are we being hit harder than other parts of the country? Well, it's very clear that uh, the BA5 variant is here. Uh, our data shows that uh, over half of the um, the uh, virus load that's being seen um, is the BA5 variant, which is one of the most infectious variants uh, of all. Um, and, uh, you know, we have uh, lots of populations that are back in the usual uh, game of meeting together, going to events together and, and congregating. So it's no surprise that uh, we're seeing a surge. So then we get to the question of, do you think a mandate, you know, if it comes in two weeks time, is actually going to be effective? There hasn't been a lot of enforcement throughout the whole process when we had them. And then do you think people are actually going to put them back on? The, the, the thing we always say, or I always say, is look at the airports. I mean, that's the place where you're supposed to have them already, and people still don't wear them. Yeah. Um, I think that there's always an ebb and flow of how people um, both respond to the public uh, mandates, but also how they respond to the news. 
Um, I think as more and more people understand uh, the infectiousness of this uh, particular variant, uh, I think there'll be a voluntary uh, adherence to the masking uh, protocol for a lot of people. Uh, but for many, uh, particularly those who've already been infected and who feel um, on some level that it gives them a, a sense of protection for several months, uh, they won't. It's going to be variable. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I, I wish I could share some of your optimism, but I guess I don't. Uh, I mean, when you talk about people getting more information and as they learn about how uh, transmissible the uh, current variant and maybe future variants are, I mean, there's been an awful lot of information out there for now going on, what, the beginning of the third year. It's hard for me to believe that people don't know at this point what we're dealing with, and they've kind of made their, their minds up, don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of that. And hopefully the people who've made up their minds are uh, of a risk category where they can afford it. Uh, I mean, when I say that people will you know, pay attention, I mean the folks who are uh, hopefully who understand that they're more vulnerable, um, but that's not always gonna be the case. So. There's going to be a caseload. There's going to be a rise. And one of the things we don't know under understand yet about the BA5 variant is just how um, virulent it's going to be in terms of causing hospitalization and death. And unfortunately, that's something that, um, you know, data is just beginning to come out now. And uh, we're probably going to be generating our own data on that here in L.A. County. Well, did you already hit on what should be the main message about a minute ago? I mean, if you had this before, BA5 resets the clock. Acquired immunities out the window. You can catch this again. So that's what people should know. They should know. Absolutely. That's something they should absolutely know. Um, and I think the other sobering fact is that um, is that the more infections you have, the more likely you you're suffer from the so-called long COVID syndrome that is these so uh, up until now unexplained uh, you know, symptoms of fatigue and headache and um, mental brain fog that a substantial number of people feel after they've been infected, including those who have never been hospitalized or seriously affected, who've just had a, a mild infection, uh, many still feel those symptoms. I mean, don't you think that the the root cause of all of this confusion that a lot of the public has goes all the way back to the beginning when vaccines first came out. And I think there was this, uh, rightly or wrongly, very widespread belief, in some degree fanned by public officials, frankly, that the vaccines would uh, really sort of mitigate getting infected in the first place, which turned out not to really be true in the long run. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're absolutely true, uh, absolutely right. Um, and I mean, public health officials like the scientists who've been studying this have been constantly been surprised by the new uh, insights that are generated from this virus. I mean, I'm a scientist and it's fascinating. It's just that uh, we're also living it and it's very sobering to understand how, how much um, this virus has changed and surprised us over time. Dr. Howard Hu is at the USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. Some key testimony around the 45-year-old rape case against Roman Polanski is about to be unsealed. So what is it likely to tell us? This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. And a little bit later on, we are going to try to clear up growing confusion about COVID vaccines and what your next steps should be. 
get that second booster shot or wait for the next generation of vaccines. Right now, though, in an effort to re-examine the rape case against uh, Director Roman Polanski, L.A. County's D.A. George Gascon asking that uh, some key testimony be unsealed. Centers around a former deputy D.A. who offered a plea deal to Polanski back in 1977 and allegations of possible judicial corruption. William Rempel is author and independent investigative journalist. It was his request that sparked the release of these transcripts. William, thanks for being here. So, yeah, what do we think could be in these? Well, it's uh, it, we hope that it uh, clears up the 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 inside story of the of the deal that was made with um, with Roman Polanski. Uh, the way the way it, uh, it there's a lot of confusion that remains, and and it's whether a plea deal that was actually uh, opposed by the district attorney at the time, um, but it was re- it was agreed to by um, by the judge. Uh, at least in private. And then the judge reneged on that when the word got out in the public uh, uh, outcry um, that um, maybe Roman Polanski was getting away with something, uh, prompted the judge to privately tell the parties that he wanted to uh, change change his mind. Uh, And that's when Roman Polanski decided he would be better off in another country. Okay, so, so what, what I'm going to do is I, I'm, I am going to stop you because what I want to do is, uh, and I'm going to ask you to do this as briefly as you can, I want to mm-hmm. kind of turn back the clock a bit because I suspect that a lot of our listeners, some of them may not even know who Roman Polanski is, let alone what the roots of this case uh, are all about. Can you give uh, us a kind of Cliff Notes version of all of that? Yeah, Roman Polanski was a, a major director. He had directed uh, the movie Chinatown uh, around that time, and he was um, he, he had a uh, he was he pled guilty to having sex with a minor, a, a young woman, a, a girl of uh, thirteen, and uh, he and and he pled guilty as part of a plea deal reached with his lawyer and the judge and the, and the prosecution, although the prosecution by all accounts was, was um, not happy about the deal. Uh, and and uh, the, it was all very controversial. You got a, you got a celebrity um, director in, in Hollywood where he's got all the big, the big time uh, Hollywood uh, heavyweights uh, speaking to help, you know, speaking out on his behalf, his, his wife, who had been um, had been killed by the Manson family, so there was some sympathy for the man, but uh, but the the youth of the of the victim was uh, was a, an outrage to the public uh, sentiment. So he's going to say, and his lawyers are saying, what that uh, this is all going to come to light, this uh, backdoor dealing and, and corruption and all that, and it's going to look better for him. But at the end of the day, does that change any public opinion? I mean, he's still slept with a minor oh that hasn't changed um but what happens is if you're if you're if the court uh if the judicial is judicial um malfeasance or or uh, misfeasance or whatever you want to call it it's when a judge makes a promise and then reneges on it um uh, you can't trust your you can't trust your judiciary and and that's what a that's the story that appealed to my sensitivity is as an investigative uh, reporter. Um, if a, a judge abusing his authority is a, is a bigger story, frankly, than one 
one case of uh, one criminal case or one celebrity uh, uh, defendant. William Rempel, author and independent investigative journalist. If you've been sitting on the sidelines of the real estate market thanks to ridiculously expensive home prices, well, now could be the time to jump right in. We'll explain that. This is KNX In-Depth. With Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. There are signs from around the states that the notoriously red-hot real estate market is starting to cool off. Home prices leveling off in the Bay Area, where they had gotten to ridiculous levels. And in Sacramento and San Jose, prices are actually starting to drop. Now the question is, will this real estate cool-down also hit the L.A. and Orange County markets? And with high interest rates on mortgages, even if home prices are lower, can anyone actually afford to buy? Oscar Way is Deputy Chief Economist at the California Association of Realtors. Oscar, thanks for being with us. Uh, so that is the question. Uh, will this uh, sort of cool down in prices happen in uh, Southern California? And again, to the point, even if so, who can afford them? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, you're right. You know, the uh, home prices are cooling down across the state and in L.A. and you know, greater L.A. area. We are seeing similar trend as well, um, and and it has to do with the high interest rate. The cost of borrowing is just way higher than what we saw what six months ago, and, and so we're seeing L.A., Orange County, Riverside, San Bernardino, all the counties in Southern California actually start kind of leveling off a little bit. Um, we are looking at you know probably May uh, median price being the peak. Uh, June, we're releasing some numbers in uh, next week. And then from this point on, we probably will see some slower price growth. Okay. So when we talk about that, is it uh, we're slowing things down? We are leveling off. We're going to drop eventually. People are going to cut those prices. Or there's a bunch of people out there just waiting for some inevitable you know, crash so they can finally get into a house. Uh, is that even on the table? <laughs> well, um, slow growth is the right word. But uh, because we still have tight supply, even though supply has been improving in the last couple months, last three months or so, compared to pre-pandemic level, compared to, say, three, four years ago, it's still tight. Uh, demand has come down. But, uh, you know, we're, we're approaching that, you know, uh, uh, area where, you know, uh, the balance, we're seeing some balance, you know, market right now. So, while we are seeing some slower growth, we're seeing some slower price uh, coming from the peak, uh, we are still at a, a pretty high level in terms of price. Um, so you know, we, we may not necessarily see prices dropping by, let's say, 10, 15%, you know, in six months or in a year or so. In fact, you know, I think, you know, we are still going to see on a year over year basis some price growth. Um, so it's still going to stay up there. Is this, though, a, a kind of dream come true for uh, institutional investors? Because while the individual uh, may not be able to afford these homes, even though they cost less because the mortgage prices are going to be a lot higher because of interest rates, for an institutional investor, it's kind of a bargain, isn't it? Well, it depends. You know, for institutional investors, we, we, we have been hearing institutional investors buying homes here and there. Uh, but in California, as compared to other states, institutional buyers are still thinking, okay, well, uh, in California, we're still seeing, you know, very high price. Now, obviously, there are some places, say in Sacramento, maybe in Riverside, San Bernardino, 
some of those areas still have a relatively you know, cheaper price compared to LA Orange County. So some institutional buyers are still taking advantage, um, especially since some of those are actually you know, taking those properties and renting them out. With the tight supply, though, remaining, and it's like always this way, it still feels to people looking that even though if they can swing it, uh, if prices come down or level off, there's always going to be some other guy with a whole bunch of cash that's just going to swoop out from under you. That's very true. Now, it's you know, all cash buyers. We're seeing more all cash buyers now, and we're also seeing you know people maybe opting for adjustable rate mortgage instead of fixed rate mortgage, which are typically a little bit lower in terms of, you know, the rates, uh, but they're not as risky as what we saw uh, maybe in 15 years ago. So you're going to see, you know, people being uh, creative in terms of, you know, meeting their finance, real estate finance uh, in the next few months. So if not institutional investors, who are all these people who can afford to make cash purchases? Well, there are some institutional uh, investors. I'm not uh, saying that there are none, but there are still people who are actually in the market uh, you know, wanting to buy. Now, many of the uh, people who are buying as primary homes, there are people who are actually you know, moving into the age of establishing households. Think about this. Um, you have the option of either buying right now or renting. As you can see from the rental market as well, it has been grow uh, going up pretty significantly too, maybe eight or nine or 10%. So those are people who are actually thinking of, okay, well, I need to establish a household. I need to, you know, expand my family. What am I going to do? And some of these people are, have the, also have the flexibility right now of not, you know, needing to, you know, work in the office. They might be opting for something a little bit cheaper, let's say in more affordable areas like Riverside and San Bernardino. Oscar Way, Deputy Chief Economist, California Association of Realtors. When we come back, Russian missiles hit an apartment block in western Ukraine with deadly results, a brutal reminder, the war in that country grinding on. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Russia uh, lobbed several missiles into a western Ukrainian city today, far away from the front lines in the Donbass region. The results were upwards of two dozen dead civilians as, once again, the Russians hit a target that seemingly has absolutely no military significance. Now, this comes amid a stalemate in the fighting in both eastern and southern Ukraine. Russian forces digging in to hold on to the Ukrainian territory they've seized, or Ukraine's military trying to reach deeper behind those Russian lines thanks to new Western weapons systems. Mark Montgomery, retired U.S. Navy Admiral and Deputy Commander of the U.S. European Command, currently an analyst at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Admiral, thanks for being with us. So, yeah, is this what we're seeing right now? Not a lot of movement, so it's the Russian playbook of taking what you've got and lobbing it pretty much indiscriminately to the other side. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And you're absolutely right, uh, you know, to describe it both as a, as a stalemate and, um, and, you know, probably a good position for the Russians. They have very short um, logistic lines. And even when they have those short ones, you can see they're getting hit hard with some of their ammo dumps and things. So I don't know that they could, could fight with longer logistics lines. So the Russians have this position they want, slowly grabbing territory in the Donbass region. And... Um, uh, you know, so, you know, from my perspective, you know, we are headed for a, a very painful summer and maybe early fall. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I guess it's foolish to try to predict how long this could grind on for. But it, it looks from all appearances as if it's going to be for the long haul. 
I think so. I, I think two, two things. One, you know, it's very hard to predict what Vladimir Putin's going to do, where, where he might suddenly declare victory and, you know, and reestablish, you know, establish some slightly larger, you know, territorial gain that he had on February 24th and, and back out or, you know, continue to press forward all the way to Kiev over years. So, you know, very hard to predict Putin. What I will tell you is we can influence the outcome. We, the United States and its Western uh, allies and partners with with what gear we provide the Ukrainians. What more do they need from, I mean, they want a whole bunch of things, but are we giving enough that we could be giving right now or should we be giving plenty more? So we're giving the right type of stuff. I believe we should be giving more of that type. And the good news is this is not, you know, your expensive F-35s uh, we're talking about here. But the kind of stuff we're giving, the, the MLRS launchers, they're a little expensive and the rounds for those are a little expensive, but those rounds... Um, which can go you know, upwards of you know, uh, two to three times the range of the, of the normal howitzers we give them are really impacting Russia's logistics lines. So giving them more of the, uh, the uh, HIMARS and MLRS systems, those are the acronyms for, for basically mobile artillery systems that fire rockets instead of rounds uh, that land farther uh, deeper into Russian territory. Selling them those, get, uh, giving them those, uh, training many more of their people on those, and then again delivering them the kind of uh, you know the kind of blocking meat and potatoes M one seventy seven howitzers uh, with you know upwards already of two hundred thirty thousand rounds. I think we're probably going to have to give them another five hundred rounds over over this fiscal year. I presume that that Vladimir Putin is in part counting on a kind of winter strategy for him, right? That, that as it gets cold, and maybe if it's very cold this winter in uh, Europe, the Europeans are going to get increasingly divisive in terms of their stance on support for the war effort because of uh, scarcity of, of uh, material needed to heat their homes. Is, is that, you think, his strategy? Uh, you're exactly right. You know, that's insightful. It is, he is waiting for, you know, it's a competition of pressure here. Can the, the cost we impose through sanctions on financial services and a little bit of energy uh, kind of derail his economy to such a degree that he decides it's not worth it? Or can his pressure in dialing back oil and natural gas deliveries to Western Europe, you know, destabilize the coalition of the willing, you know, which is about really about 14 or 15 European countries and the United States and supporting Ukraine. So which one of those could be, I guess there's a third party in this too, is will Ukrainian resilience break? So, you know, those kind of three pressures are in play. And the question is, do any of them break over the winter? I hope not, but you're right to fear, you know, the Western Europeans have not historically shown the kind of gumption that they've shown to date, but they also aren't in the middle of winter. Well, Putin also counting on winter just to hold on to what he's got too, right? Because if things slow down and you can hold on to it through winter and in the next spring, the longer you've got territory, the, the easier it is for you to say, well, this is mine now. Well, you know, when we were kids, possession was nine tenths of the law, right? And so, you know, in his mind, the longer he can hold that, he'll declare, he'll have the rump governments in there declare, you know, some kind of like a, uh, you know, uh, uh, poll or election ref referendum, and then they'll choose to either join Russia or join an independent oblast, you know, that's no longer part of Ukraine. So you're absolutely right. The longer he holds them, the more of that kind of disinformation he can play inside those territories. And the more he drives the, the Ukrainian supporting citizenry, what's left of it, out. 
You've talked about the Ukrainian will breaking, which we haven't seen so far. What do we know about what's going on inside of Russia? I mean, maybe the sanctions aren't working as, as much as we thought, or maybe they can weather them better than we thought. Is there any sustained um, you know, pressure against this continuing? So, you know, as it happened, I lived in the Soviet Union. My dad was a uh, American military diplomat there in the, during the Afghan war. And what really broke the Soviets of this was the bad news on the battlefield. The combat deaths eventually built up. And there was a question of why are we here? Why are we sacrificing ourselves here? You know, we experienced the same uh, kind of public criticism of, of our uh, of our decision making in the United States as well. But it comes much slower in authoritarian regimes. But I do think one of his Achilles heels is that this is a, this is a war being fought broadly by non-ethnic Russians from the east of Russia proper, you know, who are fighting a war on behalf of Moscow. And at some point, that's going to create instability in the uh, in Russia's, you know, east. And uh, and that could really weaken him along with the sanctions regimes. But that's going to take the Western Europeans, you know, kind of you know, hunkering down and really putting hard uh, energy sanctions on, on Russia. And they haven't done that to date like the United States has. Mark Montgomery, retired U.S. Navy Admiral, now an analyst at the Foundation of for, for Defense of Democracies. Admiral, thanks. More in-depth is on the way. We'll have another half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden making his way across the Middle East this week, employing some pretty delicate diplomacy along the way with reports that Iran is closer than ever to developing a nuclear weapon after the United States unilaterally pulled out from a deal with the Iranians meant to slow their weapons program. Well, the president finds himself now at odds with both Israel and Saudi Arabia on the best way to stop Iran. Yeah, everybody seems to agree Iran having a nuclear bomb, not a good thing, but how to prevent that from happening, that's the sticking point. Joseph Westfall served as U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia from 2014 to 17, now a professor of international relations at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for being here. So, yeah, we had the press conference today. Uh, the prime minister and the president sitting there right next to each other, and uh, the PM looking at Mr. Biden saying, uh, you should probably threaten some sort of military action if they continue with this, and uh, Mr. Biden saying, well, we think diplomacy the right way to go. So, so there seems to be our divide. Right. Uh, that's always a divide. And I think that the, the president has to very carefully uh, try to follow through on what he's trying to do in terms of a, of a treaty. But I think he's going to face more challenges in Washington with Congress, who's not going to be very interested in another agreement with the, with the Iranians that doesn't include uh, other factors such as reducing their really negative, uh, aggressive postures they're taking in Lebanon and Syria, Iraq, and in Yemen. Well, I'm, I'm curious, in your view, does the United States really need to be on the same page as Israel when it comes to Iran? I mean, if Israel decides in its interest to take some sort of either overt or, or covert military action against Iran— isn't the U.S. likely to, in one way or another, go along with a wink and a nod? And we have. We have. Israel has taken steps in, in, in many different occasions um, to let Iran know that it's, it's, it's poised to do something about its nuclear activity. Uh, 
but uh, there's a point at which the Iranians also, you know, have a significant amount of of power uh, in the region and can be uh, uh, a threat to to Israel. So in many different ways through Lebanon and and other parts of the Gulf. So I think that the the posture has to be a really strong combined partnership between us and Israel and hopefully the Arab countries to include Saudi Arabia. Has Iran said anything new other than what always happens, which is we're going to keep doing what we're going to keep doing and um, watch us? No, they. Uh, I think I think the time comes for us to really add, you know follow through on what we threatened to do and 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 uh, and take action. I, this is this is me speaking, but I think we we need to. When uh, Iran bombed Aramco uh, facilities in in Saudi Arabia, uh, Trump did nothing to respond to that. Uh, even though he had already gone to Saudi Arabia and pledged all kinds of support and partnership, and we want to sell you all these weapons and we want to work with you. Uh, when the, when Aramco was literally shut down for weeks, we did nothing. We knew exactly where those rockets came from. We knew exactly uh, uh, where the uh, uh, the attack came from. It was near Basra, and yet we did nothing about it. In in your view, where does this do you think logically end up? Uh, because as we just said, uh, at least publicly. The U.S. Israel are not exactly on the same page on how to deal with this developing situation. The Iranians apparently are continuing to to make progress, uh, if not to be able to build a a deliverable nuclear weapon, certainly to have enough uh, weapon-grade material available to them. So where does this end up? Well, I think, again, I think the United States and other countries have to have a conversation about how much stricter they want to get with the sanctions. I think a lot of countries are sort of winking at the sanctions and continuing to trade and 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 move um, uh, commercially through with um, products into into and out of, uh, including oil, uh, out of uh, Iran. And I think we got to get tougher on the sanctions and and basically make a very very critical decision as to whether or not. Militarily, you're going to do something about uh, the nuclear program. Um, take it out, mm-hmm. and that's a decision that the president has to make in line with you know leadership in Congress and and his national security team. What are you watching for when Mr. Biden gets to Saudi Arabia? I think the, I think Mr. Biden is the president is looking at this as a long term uh, re structuring of the, of the relationship. I think he, he understands that this relationship at times has been very strong and very positive, and at times it's been pretty negative. And I think he understands the importance of Saudi Arabia, both regionally as a strategic power, and also in, in terms of our um, need to have them be a stalwart um, partner with us and not allow China particularly China, to make significant inroads into uh, the Middle East, as, as they are trying to do. Um, and, of course, you know, uh, it goes without saying, prevent Russia from doing the same thing. Uh, so I think he's, you know, the, the whole idea that, uh, you know, that he's going to go talk about Khashoggi, no, he's not. You know, he's, already, he's already stated it very clear how he feels about the Saudis and about Khashoggi and about their actions. 
And they have in, in turn replied pretty candidly and very negatively about his remarks. So that's been said. That's on the table. Now it's time to, to can we work together? Um, can you develop a, a potential situation where you partner up with uh, Israel and develop diplomatic relations with Israel? Can the Gulf countries come together and form an alliance, a defensive alliance, and one that also is a trade alliance that, that allows them to be more independent of Iran? Many of the Gulf countries trade a lot with Iran. They just do it under the table. Uh, this is an opportunity to talk about, you know, how are we going to be strong on this and how, how can we help resolve the Yemen situation? So I think this is this is a way of redefining many, many issues which are important to the American people and to, and, and to our economy in the future. Joseph Westfall was U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia from 2014 to 17, now international relations professor, University of Pennsylvania. Okay, so should you rush out? and get a second COVID booster shot or bide your time until the next generation of COVID vaccines are ready. We'll try to provide some clarity when we come back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. What to do about the vaccines. If uh, you want extra protection against COVID infection, there are growing indications the Biden administration is going to say uh, doors open for the second booster shot. So that's shot number four, which have until now been limited to, to people aged 50 plus, but also on the horizon, uh, maybe a couple different versions of uh, other COVID vaccines. And there could be multiple options coming for those new vaccines from one formulated specifically to combat the Omicron strain to another second-generation vaccine designed to generate immune responses from multiple COVID uh, proteins. Dr. John Moore is a microbiologist and immunologist at the Cornell Medical College. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, it, it seems to be the, the almost now never-ending issue with this particular pandemic, which for some people the question is, when do you actually go ahead and kind of get that fortification, and should you wait for a different kind of fortification? Yes, I'm getting this question a lot from colleagues, friends, members of the public, and I know a lot of other colleagues in the same situation as me are getting the same question. There's no simple answer. We have to look at you know where we are before we know where we're going. Where we are at the moment is that even two doses of the standard vaccines are still protecting people from severe hospitalization grade COVID and death. The, the death rates and hospitalization rates uh, are only marginally up over the past couple of months. So the vaccines are holding up well for their most important purpose, which is to keep people out of hospital and uh, away from, uh, from death. But what we're also seeing is that vaccine ability to protect against the Omicron variants is very low now. It's protection. There's still some protection against infection, but it's really not strong. And that's why there is an awful lot of infections going on right now in previously infected people, in vaccinated people, and in those people who've had neither infection nor vaccination, and they're the worst off because they're progressing to disease and death. So that's where we are. The question is, can we do better? And you know, that's not really that certain. An additional booster would buy a 
few weeks to a few months, perhaps additional partial protection against infection. It won't add much to the already significant protection against, against disease and death, but it might add some protection in the short term. I'm not optimistic that changing the composition to an Omicron vaccine, BA4, BA5, is going to make that much of a difference. The, the clinical studies, the limited data that's available so far, suggests that switching the vaccine to Omicron is little better than giving another boost with the standard vaccine. So if you compare an Omicron-based vaccine and a standard vaccine, and give them either of them as a boost to a group of people, you see little difference in the outcome. So an Omicron-based booster isn't going to be a game changer. Uh, it will, like a standard booster, give some additional protection for a short period of time. So is that where the idea comes to maybe open the door to those under 50 for the original shot, but go and get your fourth? Because that has people wondering, okay, do I do that now or should I wait for the fall? Because I think there's going to be another wave then or maybe a different shot. And then you're on to four, maybe five. And some people haven't even gotten the third. Yeah, well, we'd still... <laughs> uptake of the third dose has been very poor uh, for a variety of reasons. Perhaps people were put off by short-term side effects, headaches, sore arms. That can happen. I know some people have been felt that they don't want to get another dose, which you know is ill-advised if you look at the relative risk of getting COVID compared to the inconvenience of having a sore arm and a headache and a hangover sensation for, for a day. To me, that's not something that people should consider, but they are, they do. So if you haven't taken your third, third dose, you're not going to take your fourth. There's, it's not a great idea to take your fourth dose now and then in a few weeks take another dose. Say, I mean, we're not at that position yet because the fourth, the, the Omicron-based booster isn't going to be available until you know October, November. But suppose you got a standard booster in September, it would not be a good idea to then get an Omicron booster in October. You need to space these things out. It just doesn't make immunological sense. You have to allow the immune system to react and then, and then uh, go back to normal. So if you're going to get a booster now, you're assuming that uh, an Omicron booster isn't going to be around for a few months. But it, it, this is where it all gets very tricky. People have to look at their own health status. Do you really need a booster? Are you in a vulnerable group? Uh, do you have pre-existing conditions? Are you uh, a senior of, of advanced age and ill health, in which case boosting is definitely recommended. But for normal healthy people in their 30s and 40s, a booster isn't going to add very much to the protection you've already got. But I think, I think, and you've kind of hinted at it uh, in the very first things you said about all the confusion. And, and I think it's because, uh, and, and tell me what your thoughts are on this. Uh, you know, look, a, a, a lot of people, uh, and that's not to really, you know, cast dispersions on them, but a lot of people really don't want to think about this sort of stuff. They want to be told by their doctors you know, every year you need to get a flu shot or every 10 years you need to get a booster for a tetanus shot, that kind of thing. And I wonder if it's actually fair to let people who don't have medical backgrounds try to wrestle with all of these ifs, ands, and buts, and am I in this category or that category, and try to make up their own minds about when they need and if they need to have another 
vaccine. Well, I agree with that. I mean, there are different people who have, different people have different attitudes to their own health. I mean, there is a large section of America that refuses to be vaccinated at all. They rejected vaccines. That's a huge mistake, but that's what they've done. There is another fraction of the population that are agonizing about all of this. And they seem to think at times it's almost like a dose a day keeps the virus away, which is not <laughs> the right attitude either. And and there are, you know, there are people who are, are getting themselves into a bit of a mental frenzy over all of it. And and there's a psychological element that, you know, if if not getting a vaccine booster is affecting their ability to function because they're all worried all the time, then there's as much psychological benefit to getting a booster as there may be medical benefit for that group of people. But, you know, other people take a middle ground. And you're right that physicians should give guidance, but physicians are also asking the same kind of questions that you have asked, because they're unclear about the guidance and the science is really pretty complicated. Here. At least we're not alone, right? <laughs> if the doctors yeah. are asking the questions too. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's all the time we've got. Dr. John Moore, thank, thank you so you. much. Microbiologist, immunologist, Cornell Medical College. Uh, more in-depth tomorrow. Well, we've Friday, cleared, we've cleared that up. Oh, yes. We? We'll do it again once. <laughs> if they inevitably say in two weeks, hey, boosters, we'll, say, well, yeah, we'll yeah, do this yeah, again. Yeah. Okay. And then in November or whenever. All right. More tomorrow, 1 p.m.